Lord God, we thank you that you speak to us in the Bible. Please help us by your spirit now to listen and to put into practice what we hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I was young, my family had a dog named Bella, uh, who was a Houdini-level escape artist. Uh, Whether she was in our yard or staying with friends down the street when we were away, if she decided to escape and roam freely around the neighborhood, no fence was going to stop her. Uh, It didn't matter what we did. She had a deep yearning for freedom and would take great joy in getting out and running through the streets to sniff and explore at her own leisure. Uh, Because that's how dogs are wired. To her, that was the dream. That was living the good life. I wonder what your version of the good life is. Maybe you've got big goals with a five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan. Or maybe for you right now, the good life is just not getting through the next week without having to go into isolation. Uh, Whatever it may be for you, it's bound to be shaped by the world we live in. Society around us is at pains to sell us a vision of life that involves all kinds of material success and comfort. Uh, We see it all the time in advertising, and and it's a good sales pitch because like Bella yearning to get out of the yard, in each one of us, there is a deep desire for a better life, one of comfort and security. And we will naturally look to satisfy that yearning in the material world around us because that's how our culture has wired us. In our passage today, however, Jesus confronts us with how inadequate and deceitful this worldly vision of life is. And he offers us something far more satisfying and secure. Not a life based on material success or seeking to meet our own needs, but an eternal life that is grounded in God's care and provision for us in his kingdom. So at the start of the passage, we meet a man in search of the good life, and he wants Jesus to help him get there. He tells Jesus to make a judgment in his favor in the case of an inheritance. He sees that Jesus is a popular teacher with authority, uh, and he comes to Jesus seeking to add the weight of Jesus' judgment to his own claim on the inheritance to help secure the wealth he wants. He's here for the money. Uh, But curiously, we see Jesus' response is not to say yes or no. In fact, he doesn't wade into the specifics of the case at all. Instead, he challenges the very premise. Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Because there's a problem with how the man sees Jesus. He sees him as there for his own benefit, to help him in his own pursuit of his goals of wealth. He's come to see Jesus but he's here for the money. His view of Jesus and his view of life is back to front. So in response, Jesus gives an instruction followed by a reason. Uh, And we can see this in verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This instruction comes as a warning, be on your guard. And it's a warning, not just for this man, but for us as well. Our culture shapes us to look for comfort and security in our possessions and experiences. 
whether that's the latest phone to take amazing photos of your weekend beach getaway, or the healthy super account to set you up for life, or just a takeaway on the couch in front of Netflix. And unless we are on our guard, we will happily drift along in this cultural current. To this kind of treat-yourself thinking that says money and the experiences it can buy will make me happy, Jesus responds, no, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, so be on your guard. To help us see this, Jesus goes on to tell a story in verses 16 to 21. Uh, We're introduced to a rich landowner whose wealth is growing. Uh, And it's important to note, he's not gaining his wealth through any kind of dishonesty. Uh, He's just got good land. He's the sort of person, uh, whether through family connections or the right background, who's been set up for success. The question then is, how does this man deal with his wealth? What does he do with it? Well, we actually get a little window into this man's mind as Jesus describes his internal dialogue with himself. And what we hear is telling. Listen out here for the repeated words, verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain, and I will say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Did you catch his focus here? It's all on himself, isn't it? It's all on what's his. Uh, He's a bit like one of those seagulls from Finding Nemo. It's just mine, mine, mine. My crops, my barns, my surplus grain, myself. So we begin to see why Jesus is telling this parable to the man concerned about his inheritance, the one who's there for the money. Just like him, the man in the parable is focused on his own wealth, and his plan is all about his future security and comfort. Eat, drink, and be merry, he says. Now, by earthly standards, he's got it made at this point. He's made his fortune, his financial plan is all set, he's got the food, he's got the drink, He's got all the comforts and luxuries he could want, and he's ready to start his cushy early retirement. Surely this is the good life. But then God enters the picture, and he offers a starkly different evaluation of this man and his self-centered ambitions. Verse 20, But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This wealthy man, successful by earthly standards, is a fool in the eyes of God. And it's not just him. Jesus has a wider audience in mind. He ends the story by giving this warning, verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This parable isn't just for the man in the crowd. This is a parable for you and me. This is for all of us living in a world driven by material success. To whoever buys into the world's vision of the good life based on the material and the immediate, God says, you fool. Now, why would God say that to this man who seems to have 
done very well for himself. See, when the Bible talks about a fool, it's not a comment on your intellect or your wit. We can see from the man in the parable with his barn-building plans that it's possible to be very successful and even forward-thinking and still be reckoned a fool by God. The biblical concept of a fool is not about brain power, but about someone who lives their life ignoring the reality of God's rule and authority. And that's what this man is guilty of. He's ignored God. What matters in the end is not how productive and prudent this man was with his wealth, but where the focus of his life was. See, we live in a fantastically wealthy country during the most prosperous period of history, in a culture that entices us to buy more and do more. We are relentlessly presented with the seductive image of the good life, full of exciting holidays, new devices, beautiful houses, high-powered jobs, prestigious schools. Just work harder, says the world. Set your life goals. Back yourself. Push through. The good life is within your grasp. It's glamorous and inviting, and the world presents it to us on a platter. This could be yours. And if you pursue it wholeheartedly, as the world would have you do, you will be encouraged and applauded and congratulated and honoured and envied by your friends, by your workmates, by your boss, by your family. And God will say, You fool. See, no matter how smart or charming or beautiful or successful or hardworking you are, if you make wealth and the good life your goal, if you fail to be on your guard against greed, if you behave as though life consists in an abundance of possessions, then you're acting like a fool. And God will call you on it. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking to yourself, all that earthly wealth and success that doesn't feel like where I'm headed anytime soon. Maybe for you at the moment, it's not so much a question of living the good life, it's just a question of getting through life at all. The uncertainties of the future can prey on your mind, the challenges life presents can seem overwhelming, and the needs in your own life and those around can be so pressing that it's hard to think of anything else. It's all well and good to avoid being greedy, you might think, but if I don't focus on my own needs, I'm going to struggle just to keep my head above water. Well, for you and for all of us who can get caught out by the worries and stresses of our day-to-day needs, Jesus has something more to tell us. As we continue in the passage, we can see he gives a second instruction with its supporting reason. So let's look from verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Again, Jesus is telling us as listeners to lift our eyes from our own circumstances and what we see in front of us to consider the bigger picture. When the demands of life feel inescapable, Jesus says, Don't get caught up in the worries and the anxieties of the day-to-day. Keep looking beyond yourself. Well, that sounds nice, Jesus, but how can we do that? Well, to help us understand, he illustrates his point in verses uh, 23 to 28 
this time with two examples from creation, uh, ravens and wildflowers. Now, in the context of the day, ravens were unclean birds, they were scavengers, uh, they were carrion birds, so they were not uh, well-liked or well-regarded by the people of the time at all. And yet, God provides them with food. God sees and cares enough about even the least lovable creatures like ravens to provide for them. This is meant to show us that God is a generous and caring creator who loves to provide for his creatures. And Jesus says in verse 24, how much more valuable you are than birds. So the implication is clear. If God provides for a creature as insignificant and unlovely as a raven, how much more will he provide and care for you? Do you believe that? When the worries of life press in, when the need is overwhelming, do you trust God's goodness to you? Not just his abstract theoretical goodness, that God is vaguely good in some kind of far-off cosmic sense, but do you trust that God genuinely cares for you and wants what is good for you? The second illustration is much like the first, but we move from birds to flowers. Now, flowers are an image here of fragility, even mortality. Here today, gone tomorrow. So when we feel vulnerable and weak, when we feel like life is getting beyond our control, Jesus reminds us of our Father's care even for the fragile wildflowers that only last a day. And how much more will he clothe us, even us of little faith, us when we find it hard to believe, us when we don't want to trust, us when all we can do is cling to God's promises. God cares for us. He cares for you. Do you believe that? Each of us will encounter worry and anxiety at different points in our life to greater or lesser degrees. You might be feeling anxious now about any number of things, work, school, COVID numbers, natural disasters, your family, your health, the economy, the climate. Maybe for you, anxiety is a daily struggle. Maybe you don't even understand why. I want to encourage you here that this instruction from Jesus not to worry is not a stick to beat yourself with when you feel the anxiety welling up, but instead it is an invitation on the basis of the character of our Heavenly Father and his attitude toward his children. So when you feel the worry starting to take over, I want you to look out for the birds flying overhead and the delicate little wildflowers blooming in the grass. And I want you to remember Jesus' invitation to trust in the good and generous provision of God to whom we are much more valuable than birds, even in our fragile weakness. So we've had two instructions from Jesus. Firstly, don't be greedy and store up possessions for yourself and so be labeled a fool by God. And secondly, don't be anxious about your life but instead trust your heavenly Father to provide. But now the question lingers, what does God's provision for us look like? Is Jesus offering a guarantee that if you trust him, you'll always have a healthy bank account and a comfortable lifestyle? Well, no. He consistently tells us as listeners to look beyond our possessions and our daily needs and raise our eyes to something bigger, 
So again, the question comes, if life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions, if life is more than food and the body more than clothes, well, what does life consist of? And what more is there to life and the body than food and clothes? Well, to answer that, we're going to keep reading into the final section where Jesus gives us a third instruction with another reason. So let's look at verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. I want you to hear this. Jesus' instruction, seek his kingdom. And the reason your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. What are we lifting our eyes to? What is Jesus' vision of life all about? What are we to seek? It is nothing less than the kingdom of God which he is pleased to give to us. What does it mean to be given the kingdom of God? Well, John Piper puts it this way uh, on a slide. He says, Uh, It means simply and staggeringly and unspeakably that the omnipotent rule and authority of the king of the universe will be engaged forever and ever on behalf of the little flock of God. Can you see how Piper wants us to feel the magnitude of this? Far above the good life as our world presents it, far beyond a life worrying about the needs of the day, the God who made the world and governs all of creation offers us to share in his eternal kingdom. Not as servants or slaves, but as dearly loved children and heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. The man in the crowd was worried about getting his share of his earthly inheritance, but Jesus says this in Matthew 25, describing what he will say to his flock on the last day when he returns. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The generous provision of our Father is not about material success in the meeting of daily needs, though it is good and right to enjoy these things with thanksgiving when God does provide them to us. But God's provision is seen most fully and fantastically in the kingdom he has prepared for us who are united to the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this, If we died with him, that is Jesus, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. To reign as co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God that he has prepared for us to know and experience God's good presence and love forever in the new creation. This is what Jesus is saying has been given to us as a free gift. He doesn't say we've been given an opportunity to earn it. It's been given. And it's the Father's pleasure to give it. He doesn't give begrudgingly. He isn't manipulated into doing something he doesn't really want to do. He gives it freely, generously, wholeheartedly, because it is his good pleasure and delight to do so. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. If you know Jesus as Lord, if you trust in his sacrificial death on your behalf to reconcile you to God, then this is your reality. Do you believe that? 
God's free gift of grace in Jesus doesn't stop at forgiveness of sins. It extends even to adoption as his child and the inheritance of his kingdom. This is something to get excited about. Are you looking forward to the day when the Lord Jesus returns and the old order is done away with and evil is judged and new creation is inaugurated and Jesus is crowned king and his people reign with him? Is that the day that you hope and wait and long for? If you know the reality of eternal life in Jesus, then anything the world offers you will pale in comparison to the heavenly treasure that is yours. And if you're not yet convinced, if you're still considering your response to Jesus, then this offer is on the table for you too. Seek the kingdom of God wholeheartedly, not earthly treasure, because your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And so Jesus gives us some instructions of what seeking his kingdom should look like. Uh, it should look like now. Uh, in verse 33, he says, Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Knowing God's gracious generosity to us should make us generous people. So yes, you can downsize and downgrade your lifestyle. You can give generously to those in need. Not because doing so would make you a good person or because it's up to you to fix all the problems in the world, but because a heart set on the heavenly treasure of God's kingdom can reach out with genuine love and generosity. Because if your highest hope and your greatest ambition is assured by your heavenly Father's generosity to you in giving you the kingdom, well, then everything else can be held lightly and given off cheerfully for the good of others without threatening your ultimate security. The man in the parable saw only himself because of his greed. The world we live in and the culture around us runs after the worries of the day. But if you were a child of God under his good and generous care, then you are free to show love and generosity in whatever circumstance you might find yourself in. And life will not always be easy or comfortable, often the contrary. You may, you may well find yourself without work or facing a life-threatening health condition, unhappily married or unhappily single. You might face opposition because of your faith. But Paul writes this in Romans 8 to encourage us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In whatever painful experience we go through, and we will go through them, we can find our secure hope in God's generous love for us, in giving us the kingdom. As we remember that life is more than food and the body more than clothes. And the world cannot offer you a hope like that. I told you earlier that if you act like the man in the parable, God will call you a fool. I said that because I don't want that to happen to you. Now, as I finish, I want to tell you about a man named Jim Elliott. He was a missionary from America who gave up his life and was killed on the mission field for the sake of the gospel. This was a man who had a comfortable life and good prospects. He had a wife and a daughter. But he chose to go to a people group in Ecuador who had never heard the gospel before, knowing the dangers and what he stood to lose. But knowing also what was securely his in Jesus and what was offered to them also. 
This is what he said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I've been asking you if you believe what God has been saying in this passage. Tim Elliott was a man who believed the good news of the kingdom. So as you consider your future, as you face the daily struggles and worries of life, take this to heart. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at your generosity to us in the Lord Jesus. Help us to set our hearts on your kingdom, to trust your goodness to us, and to live lives of genuine care and generosity as we wait for the day when the Lord Jesus will return. We ask this in his name. Amen.